To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on today's podcast, I have on J.P. Vincent from Big Chino Outfitting. So J.P. is the owner-operator of Big Chino Outfitting, and these guys are so good at producing these mind-blowing critters, these giant bucks and giant bulls. And, and J.P. also like has this great approach to hunting and the enjoyment of it. And um, so it made for a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot about uh, Arizona hunting. We talk about general season Arizona hunting. Uh, we talk about some of the coveted tags and just the approach when you draw one of these tags. Uh, JP knows all about it as he drew the strip tag a couple years back and produced this mind-blowing buck. Um, I saw it in person just with the extras and and I'll use it as the uh, thumbnail for this podcast as well, but um, just an absolute giant. But I really enjoyed the conversation with him. I know you guys are going to enjoy it too, so we'll get right into it. I just want to thank a couple sponsors. I want to thank Everly Stock. I've been using Everly Stock it's been quite a few years now. I've got a bunch of different packs that I have different uses for. So I use their kite pack as their day pack or for a quick overnight pack. It's lightweight, still packs the weight really well, uh, and, and really durable. Uh, then I'll use their little big top. I use this for three to five day adventures. And, and then I also like to use their destroyer pack and their destroyer all use for extended times. Um, uh, the other pack that I like to use is the mainframe with the vapor series where you can put a 2,500 cubic inch, 5,000 or 7,500 cubic inch on there. And that thing packs the weight really well. In fact, that's what I use to pack my moose out. So Everly Stock is building these great packs. They have one uh, for every different preference, uh, every different hunter out there. Uh, I really like them. They've done right by me. If you're in the market for a new pack, make sure to check them out at Everly Stock. I also want to thank Savage. Savage builds the best out-of-the-box accuracy rifles that I've ever shot. Uh, I built up a, a new 6.5 Creedmoor that I'm super impressed with, and it was one of those deals that I was sighted in and shooting great groups with just a handful of shots out of the things. They're so accurate out of the box. Uh, they have a bunch of different models, so uh, they've got models for budgets that are still great shooters. They also have, like our favorite in the office is the 110 Ultralight. It's a mountain rifle, uh, comes in super lightweight, and then it's got the Accu stock on it where you can adjust the length of trigger pull or the length of pull. Uh, you can adjust the comb height, and then it also has an Accu trigger, which you can adjust yourself for different pounds. And, and anybody that shoots a rifle knows that um, uh, you go get your trigger done. The first thing when you get a rifle is you have a low-weight trigger pull as it makes for a more accurate rifle. Now you can do that yourself with this Accu trigger. So if you're in the market for a new rifle, make sure to go check them out over at Savage. They're just producing great rifles that are super accurate. So impressed by those guys. I also want to thank Black Ovis. 
so impressed by Black Ovis. Uh, I really like the Black Ovis name brand. In fact, my buddy Dylan Ness had a, a pair of puffy pants that he used this last week that were Black Ovis brand and um, really good ones. I looked at their sleeping bags. Uh, they have absolutely everything you could need for any hunt. Uh, they're an outdoor retail store or internet retail store. Uh, they also, not only do they carry their own name brand, but they carry the best name brands out there. So a lot of the sponsors on the show, you can get Everly Stock there. You can get Cryptech there. Um, uh, just a, a, a bunch of the top brands to choose through there. So if you're in the market for anything for a new hunt, go check out their internet retail store at blackovis.com. I also want to thank Camo Fire. Uh, again, hanging out with Dylan Ness and um, Dan Heverin. Those guys have picked up quite a few items off that Camo Fire and saved a pile of money. So there's 80 new hunting deals that come up every 24 hours. Uh, these guys had some, uh, uh, they were like goose down booties uh, that they were wearing around camp that looked pretty comfortable. I wish they would have picked up an extra pair for me. Uh, but they have a bunch of new hunting deals that come up on this Camo Fire. It's a great app save you a pile of money and pick up some great gear in the process. So make sure to check them out at Camo Fire. And over at Eastman's, um, we've got that uh, the mule deer course over there. So uh, I've got a lot of great feedback off it. Uh, guys that are killing great bucks that went through the mule deer course that learned a lot. And um, so I'm, I'm really proud of how this came out. Uh, if you guys have muley hunts that are coming up next season, you can gain years worth of knowledge in a handful of days going through. We have over 100 videos. Dan Picard's involved in it. Guy Eastman's involved in it. Uh, really proud how that came out. So uh, if you've got some mule deer hunts coming up, make sure to check it out at Eastman's Mule Deer Course. Uh, you can also check out Tag Hub, our internet research tool. Uh, you can check out the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, check out the videos on uh, Eastman's Beyond the Grid. Just search Eastman's Hunting TV on YouTube. And uh, we're also on the Outdoor Channel as well, so you can check us out there. Uh, pretty pumped at the new videos I have coming out from last year and uh, also ones that I've filmed this year. Uh, so should be some great content on there as well. And... Um, Man, with that, I'm just getting back from a great hunt. It's just so epic. Uh, so many great plays at uh, Bucks. Um, man, I had so fun with my buddy Dylan, my buddy Dan. We captured uh, some good footage. Man, I had a I had a buck totally get out of the way of my arrow the second to last day. It was just a bummer. He was walking by at 46, broadside, got a good range, drew back, didn't know I was there, grunted at him. He stopped. And broadside when I shot, and uh, he turned and rolled and away from that arrow by the time the arrow got there. It's pretty wild to be able to look over it on video. So I'll, uh, maybe I'll post that on my social media so you guys can um, uh, feel my pain on that deal. But, oh, it's such an epic hunt. It's what I dream about is just being into to big rutting bucks and chase them all over heck, put on a bunch of miles, like over 60 miles or something like that. It, um, crazy fun hunt. But uh, back to work now, trying to get my house painted, trying to get some things done, and trying to maybe squeeze a couple more days out in this muley rut here. Got to get my house moved too. So plenty of things to do on my end, but uh, going to get this podcast out to you guys and um, keep rolling on and getting some things done. So uh, JP Vincent uh, from Big Chino Outfitting, uh, such a fun podcast and conversation. This is Eastman's Elevated. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Uh, let's get it going.
I'm live here. I've got JP from Big Chino Outfitting. So um, really psyched to have JP on. He outfits out of northern Montana, uh, or uh, northern Arizona, excuse me, JP, not northern Montana, but uh, <laughs> northern Arizona. How is your season? Dude, it's, uh, it's really been interesting. It's been a great start to the season. We're, we're right at the really the meat and bones of our season, actually. So we just finished up the, uh, the antelope uh, hunts, the early antelope hunts, or the over-the-counter archery mill deer, our early season elk hunts. And now we're going to go into general deer this week, and we'll have some deer hunts for about three weeks, and then ride it back into elk again. And then we go right back into the late season archery deer. So, so far, it's been great. Arizona's a blessed state this year with all the rain. Lots and lots and lots of rain this year. Yeah, I saw that that antelope that your son arrowed. Uh, what a beast of an antelope! Oh, oh my a, gosh, uh, that thing was unbelievable. Well, you know we're very fortunate, uh, very fortunate to have that that opportunity. But you know he waited. Honestly, he waited. Um, gosh, twenty-two years. I think he 20, well, it'd be 20 years because he's 30. So you can't apply in Arizona to your 10, but he had the extra points. So he had 22 points. He was a max bonus point holder. And I'll tell you what, that kid, you know, uh, anybody knows my son, junior, man, he's, he's just driven. And um, he was just about to turn his tag in because Arizona has that where you can point guard your tag. He looked about it every single antelope you know, for the last, since he had the tag. So for at least, you know, what, six months, he's been looking at goats in June, July, and August. And just finally, just at the end, literally like the, like the 11th hour, he found this goat and, um, he lived with him for the most part. And that's what you got to do. Sometimes you find goats of this caliber and, uh, he smashed it at 50 yards with his bow. I was fortunate enough to be there, uh, with one of my other guides, we were just there glassing for him, and it was awesome. It was well-deserved, I'll tell you, well-deserved. It's unbelievable. And then, um, I, I don't know, I doubt you'll remember it, but I, uh, the first time I ever met you, I saw you walking around uh, as the the Western Hunting Expo, and um, you had just killed this great buck. Like, you got your chance for the strip tag and then made right on your opportunity and killed one of the biggest bucks I've ever put my hands on and then wrote a story about it for uh, Eastman's, which made for a great cover. Uh, congratulations on that buck. That was only a couple years ago, right, JP? Yeah, it was a couple years ago in 2019, actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks so much. You know, I had been applying for the strip for – at least 30 years and I'd never drawn a tag. And then Arizona went to the point system. So I was applying for the strip prior to that. And I quit putting in for any other tags other than a strip. So kind of by my calculations, I think I had like 22, 23 points, whatever the max was, but I had already been applying for seven years prior and had not ever drawn the tag. So, um, yeah, I was, I was stoked. Um, it was really interesting, uh, kind of like this point guard system. I actually had the tag in 2018 and I turned it back in because it was a horrible horn growth. And, um, it, you know, I, I scouted, you know, really hard. Plus on top of that, that we have historic knowledge from guiding some clients in the strip. I don't take a lot of strip hunters, you know, I'm not really known as a strip guide, but I do take strip hunters. Um, and when we do go in there, I mean, we grind it. And, uh, so with me, my having my tag personally in 2018, I put, you know, had a pretty good feel for what I thought was going to become something. And in 2019, 
the winter was phenomenal um, with moisture here, which is indicative in our state about horn growth. So I sucked it up and put in, and I knew it was max bonus point holder, and I felt like, you know, I know you're going to draw the tag. So I just went after it in the spring and just, man, I put so much time and effort into that deal. Um, I knew about every hammer buck, and there was some hammers that were killed that year and that I'd seen. And we happened to find this buck that we called Diesel. And um, I lived with the buck with my son. I mean, literally, when I say that, the same thing he did with his antelope. But I had at least almost four solid weeks in the strip prior to the hunt that I lived up there. And I just kept track of that buck and others. But I, I mean, I really kept close track. And I just got real blessed, and I was fortunate to kill him. I killed him at 80 yards. I wanted to shoot him with my bow. My sons talked me out of it because a lifetime weight on a giant, giant buck. And So thank you so much. Uh, I just, you know, like I tell everybody, even a squirrel can find a nut. So I found mine. Well, uh, I don't know if that's quite a blind squirrel when you spend four weeks watching the buck you want. That's a tremendous amount of, of time and effort into a tag like that. And it it's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to do it. Four weeks is a long time. And so is that how you treat like a lot of these these tags or uh, like a lot of the guys that, that draw these premium tags that you're going to guide? Is it all about just spending time in the unit and locating those bucks and then trying to learn their behaviors and uh, the, the habitat they're running? Do you think that's the key to killing these tremendous trophies? Well, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. And especially now in Arizona, you know, they banned the trail cams this year. So, you know, you got to have time in the field. And it's the only way you're going to be able to do it when, and so when you find something exceptional. Um, and, and again, exceptional in my eyes is whatever the hunter believes to be exceptional. Um, everybody has their own boundaries and with their own idea of what that is. And so absolutely 100%, you've got to. And the first place that buck was ever seen, for instance, was probably seven to eight miles away from where he was killed. And um, I only know of one other outfitter that had seen him um, away from where we killed him at. And um, there was a rumor that that somebody had got a shot on him. But again, I didn't, um, you know, we didn't uh, we didn't see anything where he was wounded or any kind of sign that that may have happened. But uh, at the end of the day, I the one thing I will tell you, you know, I've I've been hunting, you know, my entire life, and so prior to trail cameras, prior to cell phones, prior to long actual long range shooting, prior to bows that are you know designed the way they are, um, I used to just hunt the old school way where you just put a pack on with a you know ten power set of binoculars if you could afford it and grind it out, and that's what you had to do to kill this buck because he was nowhere where he lived. Uh, which to me was a blessing that there was nowhere that you were going to be able to class him up. There's no way he was in a tall pine. So you couldn't get on a big giant knob with a BTX, you know, um, and find him. So you had to be in his kitchen, you know, you had to be in his living room. You had to know what his behaviors were. And when I, my son actually junior is the first one that relocated the buck. Um, after that happened, um, then we took that and that's exactly what we did. And they had to go back. So I'm retired from the fire department. I'm full-time outfitter. I had the time to do it. So it was a lot of lonely days and nights, especially in the strip. Cause you don't have communication with people. 
And uh, I got to understand these behaviors, where he was bedding, what his travel pattern was, where he was watering. I actually killed him where he watered uh, because I knew it was the one constant. Uh, because a rut was coming in, there was a lot of does, and I knew that that's where he was going to be. And, it, you know, that's exactly what happened, you know. Hmm. So. Yeah, that's wild. Like, there's no substitute for hunting skill set, is there, JP? It's like you can draw a good tag, but if you haven't spent the years honing your your skill sets, honing your your glassing, your still hunting, your sign reading, uh, uh, honing uh, your knowledge base and map reading, if you haven't spent the time honing all those skills, there's no way that you're ever going to have a chance at buck at a buck like that. Like everybody gets lucky once in their life, but that consistent success or that success on a trophy like that it seems to me like you just have to spend so many so much time and effort honing those skill sets to get to a place to even give yourself a chance at success and so um just like you're talking about spending time in the unit and and whatever tag i'm going to draw or whatever hunt i'm going to go on it seems like those those scouting days, they, they almost pay you back tenfold. And it's not always finding the buck you want, but it's it's about learning the unit and finding the access roads. And, you know, it's one thing to read it off a map. It's another thing to be there in person. And not all roads, you know, that say they're open off a map are open, you know, once you get there in real time. Or there's something, too, that, that, that scouting off um, – uh, like satellite imagery or like, well, all these programs are great and they can give you a feel for glassing points. Uh, it doesn't give you a feel for how big the country is until you show up there. And so like, uh, you know, I think a testament to that buck you killed is a lifetime of building your hunting skills, you know, not only for yourself, but for your family, for your clients. Like you spend a lot of time out in that, that, that Arizona landscape, learning it and honing those skills. And so when you get your chance at a once in a lifetime tag or a once in a, a 30 year tag, you know, all of a sudden you, you've built yourself to a place where you can set your expectations that high on that trophy buck and then put in your time. Um, but it does take all of it. Like you said, that buck wasn't glassable. A lot of these mature animals, uh, they feel the hunting pressure nowadays. And I know, you know, like the elk I was hunting this year in a high pressure unit, um, you know, I always rely upon my glass and I, I let my glass do my walking for it, which I'm sure you do a lot of the times as well. And it, it's a way, it's a way of life almost more so than just looking through your glass. It's finding those good vantage points that show off that country. And I've always been able to glass up elk because they're drawn to the, to the meadows, to that diversity of feed in that meadow grass. But I found this year, like, um, a lot of those those elk were timbered up before even daybreak, before first light. Like they'd come down to the meadows and feed, and then they were back in the timber. And so it, it really forced me to do more still hunting and more echolocation, you know, as far as bugles, really slowing down in that, that timber and hunt my way through it until I could eventually kill an elk. But I had to adapt a bit as I, you know, most of the time I'm hunting wilderness or real rugged backcountry where I have it to myself where animals are a little bit more glassable so so do you think those those bucks uh, like uh do you feel like a lot of these bigger bucks are starting to be timbered up or more crafty or in places that you can't glass easy or you can't glass from a vehicle you've got to climb a vantage point or you've you know like they're like they're just um it seems like that that's what gets them to grow up doesn't it Oh, there's absolutely no, you know, it's really interesting. Everything you say, 100% agree with and honing your craft is incredible. At the time in a field, 
Um, you can study all the maps you want, but time in the field you cannot you know, take away. You know, I document every year. You know what I do, and I've been documenting a lot of things. I document feed, I document rain, I look at you know all sorts of different stuff. So I can go back from to historic knowledge when you have dry years, wet years, semi-wet, where I think animals are going to be based on what I find it. But you're 100% correct. You just you just cannot take away from. I have an average personally about 250 days in the field uh, myself personally, and that that I spend out doing something, looking, you know, glassing. You know, it's funny. I don't chase shedhorns, um, but I do spend a lot of time during a shedhorn season glassing because I want to I want to catch the bulls that survive. So we're kind of taking inventory. I want to watch the bucks that survive so we can take inventory. Uh, like in the Arizona Strip, um, I try to go one week after the hunts are done uh, while the rut's at its peak. Uh, myself and either one of my sons or one of my guides, we'll, we'll take a buzz up there if the weather allows us to. And we'll just glass box just to see what didn't get killed on the rifle hunt, you know. Um, same thing with the Kaiban. There's not a lot of water, a lot of snow. We'll go up and look around and and uh, but all those things, you know, play a huge role in understanding what a big, real big buck track looks like or a big bull track. You know, understanding their behaviors. Um, I think it's uh, it's definitely a craft that you have to work on. But I'm 100% in agreement with you that um, you can do all the digital research you want, and it's very helpful. And there's some guys that are really, really good at it. But even then, and I think that one of the most like this year in Arizona, we've had so much rain that I can tell you about roads, but my concern is can you access those roads because there's so many that are washed out? And that's a good example. So you can look at all the digital mapping you want, but how do you get there? And if you can't get there by what you think is, you, how can you figure out the way to get there? And the last thing you wanna do is show up two or three days before your hunt and not know how to get to where you just did all your work at. And so, I'm with you on that. Um, I, I, I really am, but I can't. You just can't replace time in the field and paying attention to habitat and behaviors. I mean, I have been fortunate that I love to hunt. I have a passion for it. My sons do. My guides do. So we really, really, really pay very close attention um, to behaviors of animals. Um, I actually have classes with my guides and talk about behaviors with animals. And, um, you know, because I kind of feel like, you know, I'm older now, I'm 58, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I have this plethora of information that I believe I've kind of collected in my little computer in my head. So I just try to share it as much as I can with my people so that we can be effective for our clients and um, and put the effort in. Because I can tell you right now, we have a lot of success with, with hunting elk, and especially like, let's say, the late-season rifle hunts. The reason why the late-season rifle hunts are so successful for us because when we find a giant, we find a jumbo, we find a, a bull that meets the client's criteria, we don't leave them. We literally sit on them and watch them. And uh, I've had situations where I've had guides out there for two weeks, three weeks, literally keeping an eye on a bull or a big buck until the you know hunting season or until the hunting time comes, just so we can do exactly what we just talked about. Man, that's um. You said so many smart things there, JP, like the, that journaling, like keeping track of, of 
per year and the conditions and where the elk or deer were on a dry year versus a wet year. It seems like every year it's a different puzzle that we're trying to solve, like the the conditions and the habitat. And sure, there's places that are good to me year after year, but, you know, like, like elk hunting's a lot of timing. You could go in the best elk spot in the world and there could be no elk there. You missed them by a week or they're going to be there next week. Like like elk hunting is an all or none, and it's a timing. And I know around here, the northern states that I hunt, like that feed and that moisture uh, really makes a huge difference with the clover, where the elk are found at, uh, how fast the elk start to drop to, to ag fields. Like it, it plays such an important role in it. And these elk, you know, when you, when you call it right and you know where they're going to be, like I know early season they're going to be hanging in the, the, the high country 8,500 to 10,000 feet. And, you know, that it'll depend how long they hang there for – uh, depending on how long the food or how long the grass stays good. And I know, you know, once the feed starts to burn off that they're going to drop in elevation. They're going to be uh, more on the, the, the north-facing timber where the grass is going to stay green longer. So, like, all these little things that you're taking notes of in these journals you can refer back to. And I try to be good about journaling it. Like, a lot of it is inside my own head just like it is yours. Like, you, you learn year after year in these – these experiences, you know, they 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 craft your your hunting skill set, and then they 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 craft your instincts as well. And your instincts, like every day, you have to decide where you're going to go hunt, where you're going to go walk, which bull you're going to look for, which buck you're going to look for. There's a hundred right decisions that you have to make, but when you hone these instincts, you seem to make pretty good decisions in the field. And sure, it's not every hunt or every time you go out, uh, but throughout the years when you hunt a lot and you get so much experience in the field, like you you have good hunting instincts. And so like I think it's awesome that you pass that on to your guides and pass on your knowledge base. And the same thing that, that I try to do with this podcast is like share the stuff that's made me successful over the years, uh, uh, share the tidbits, uh, share the tactics, and now somebody can use this information and apply it to their own hunting and, and cut their learning curve immensely, but they have to put in the work too. They can't just listen to it and, and then on there all of a sudden they're the hunter that I am because they just don't have the days of field or the hunter that you are. But I think it's great that, that you try to pass this down to your guys and try to pass this knowledge on because – uh, it's not easy. We're in a different day and age of hunting, and I'm sure you know it better than than most. Like uh, the game is constantly changing, and if we don't change or evolve with it, all of a sudden we're going to be out of luck at consistently harvesting these trophies, you know. And in the day and age now, where the COVID times, where it is so popular, and we do have immense amount of hunting pressure, uh, it's it's like we can really key into those those hunting instincts. I think to to further our knowledge, and it's. It's a, it's about hunting places you know. It's also about expanding your knowledge, at least for me. Even when I hunt units I've been in, I'm constantly trying to expand my knowledge and transpose information of, like, good areas to, like, oh, maybe that basin over there would hold them, or maybe they're over there. It seems like good spots that I find, they don't stay good forever. And I don't know if it's my hunting pressure or if it's just the way things are that things are always changing. But it just seems like I have to constantly evolve to keep finding good hunting areas. Do, do you find that, JP? Or do your hunting areas, you know, the same spots are really good year after year? Or do you find yourself adapting and evolving to the times as well? 
Well, first of all, I mean, everything everything you said, you're spot on. And I do believe that you have to adapt to the times. You have to adapt to the technology. Um, there are some things that I think don't change. Um, I think, and it's really funny, uh, Cameron Haynes is a good example who kind of put physical fitness on the map. And then with him and Sorenex and Sorenex Outdoors and Bert Soren and Brandon Lilly and you know, you look at the Under Armour athletes like Johnny Utah and Amanda and uh, Caldwell, Rihanna, and all them. That the point I'm trying to get at is what we didn't talk about when we we're younger is being like a physical athlete, uh, an outdoor athlete, for instance. What you saw was a younger generation, which you still see today, being physically fit to be able to to do what they do. And so, why do I bring that up right now? Because I think you have to be healthy and physically fit to be able to to be able to put 100% of effort to hunt hard. And I think you have to develop your craft and your skill set, you know, of learning the glass and understanding behaviors. And the only way you can do that is to be out there doing it. So you take those two caveats and you and you learn those things and then paying attention to behaviors and, and keeping logs of stuff. But for me, I believe that knowledge is power only if you share it. Because what good is all this knowledge? And, and I don't have it and I don't share it. I want every hunter that I come across, whether it's on a podcast, whether it's physical, uh, whether they hunt with me or not, to have success. Um, I'm not hung up on, on and worried about how many people kill the biggest bucks or the biggest bulls. I'm so happy for people when they harvest a buck, even if it's a buck or a bull that we've been trying to hunt and they and they beat us out on it or they, the opportunity happened where they killed it and we didn't sure you know there's always that competitiveness you like you wanted it to be you but you know what at the end of the day i just chalk it up and say okay well let's go find the next one because i'm never worried about it because there's always another one out there to go find or to go hunt or that you got in your plethora of, of information to go look for and so you know i don't i, I just believe that people put the physical fitness aspect on it and, and they, and they work as hard physically fit and, and the work is hard behind glass and put their effort in and what, at, at whatever level again, that they're capable of, it's going to make them have higher success. And for me, if I can give you information that can help you become better at what you do so that you can enjoy those out the outdoors as much as I do, and as much as the people that come to have the outdoor experience with us, hey, man, that, that's what it's about. So I just really think that that's a really, really important thing. And, and again, I think one of the things that's really interesting that you bring up is the change of technology. So the trail cams, I'm going to use an example because it's kind of a sore subject with some states and some people. And I'm not going to get in a trail cam debate, but I know this much. In 1998, we killed a world record bull called Twister. And it was actually, I'll bring this up, a little historical information. He was the first animal that Eastman's Journal put on their cover that was a harvested animal. Um, they had never put a animal on their cover. Because back in the old days, um, Eastman's Journal would show beautiful animals, but they were photographed, you know, pictures of, of bucks or bulls. Um, but the way I understood it, and if I remember correctly, in 1998, when we killed Twister, um, Larry Fisher killed him here in Arizona. Um, that bull was the first on the cover of Eastman's that they had ever posted a actual animal that had been killed. And um, we didn't have cell phones. 
we didn't have trail cameras. What we had was people that had a desire um, and a skill set and time and effort that we put in. And um, I just remember prior to the tarot camera thing, to be quite frank with you, I, I felt like we harvested some of the biggest animals, you know, in Arizona and we were very blessed and fortunate to. And, um, and I don't say that so much about Big Chino. I say collectively as a hunting group that there was a lot of people that were killing some really, really tremendous animals. And then the trail camera thing kind of came into play and I think that, you know, certainly there was a, a, a lot of animals that were, that were being harvested. But then I think, you know, it, it just got out of context. And uh, whether I agree or disagree with a trail, trail cam ban, um, you know, I, I just remember that hard work, perseverance, and effort is what brought our success. And, and I think if you take that and, you, and that's your base foundation of what you do, and then you're able to incorporate the new technologies with long range shooting or these bows that shoot a hundred yards or whatever you want to call it. Again, I'm not here for an ethical discussion where everybody thinks a thousand yard shot or a hundred yard shot is ethical or not. I'm just saying, here's the deal. You have to be able to adapt to it um, and be able to be capable of it. If you're going to hunt today's world. Um, and if you choose not to, cause I have some clients that hunt with me that absolutely refuse to shoot over 300 yards. And I say to them this, great. I'm, we're all about that. Be in shape. Be prepared because you got to get closer. We got to hone your skill, your hunting skill. If you want the truth, I'd rather kill everything at 20 yards if I could do it. Absolutely, that's that's what I'd rather do. Just be honest with you, you know. Yeah, what a what a healthy mindset you have, JP. Like uh, uh, all the way through that that thought to where you finish the thought about technology, and it comes down to these base skill sets, whether you have the technology or not. And 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 I too, uh, I'm part of this next generation. I'm 42 now, but I've lived my whole life for Western hunting and in improving my skill sets. But I remember before we had Onyx. And I remember, like, uh, you used to have to 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 be able to navigate off maps. You have to you used to be able to have to find your public land through maps. So since I was able to do that, I had this great advantage over everybody else because I could find these spots uh, of public land because I was good at, at my map research. When when Onyx came around. It made things like it's a great technology and I use it all the time and I can't imagine my hunting without it nowadays. I use it for my scouting, my hunting. Uh, I use it for uh, safety, so many different things. Uh, but, you know, I think I almost had a bigger advantage before Onyx came out and then everybody could navigate onto these private lands or onto these public lands uh, and these islands of public lands. But there too, I just had to adapt and now I use this this tool in my own hunting and it improves my own hunting skill set. But I'm with you. It comes down to that, that, that core, that, that basis skill sets. And I, I love what you said about being happy for other guys that are successful. Like comparison is the thief of all happiness. And if every time a big buck or a big bull comes across your feed, you get upset or you have this competitive nature. And I, I like the way you explained it, how, you know, you are competitive. You do want to kill that buck, but when somebody else kills it, you're happy for him. And I, I found myself in that trap of bow hunting before is being jealous when somebody else kills a big animal. Well, you know, why wasn't it me or why did he get lucky or like, and, and all of a sudden I'm not enjoying my own experience or I'm in this comp 
competition and it's not healthy. Like the the healthy way is to be happy for these guys, be happy for the work they put in, the animal they harvested. I love what you said. Like there's always a ne- next one to go find. There's always another one, you know, and focusing on that next one and and two, like the way you stated to control the controllables, like you, you have all these different hunting facets that go into being a complete hunter. And that is like your glassing skill, socking skill, map ability, and also physical fitness and physical fitness. Like guys thought you were crazy 20 years ago when you were running to get in shape for hunting season. But what it does is it, no buck is too far. No bull is too far. You can always pack them out of some hole if you kill them in there. But the other thing it does is it sharpens our mind like like being disciplined and making myself get out on these trail runs day in day out it builds discipline to where when season gets here you know i'm not going to sleep in a day or if i have a free afternoon i'm i'm going to go hunt like i built this discipline that now i'm going to spend all my time after my goal animal after my goal uh, of arrowing a good critter this season and so it like builds this this mental toughness you build these layers of mental toughness and and mental toughness, mental fortitude, like uh, 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 perseverance, like these are all attributes that are so important to the the Western hunter. Like if you like if you ask uh, 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 ten uh, consistently successful Western hunters, you know what their biggest, what their best attribute is. It's it's persistence. Like persistence kills. You just got to keep after it. Like, am I gonna make every shot I take? I'd love to. I'd like to tell you that I work so much on my bow hunting that that I'd love, you know, that I expect to make every single shot, but I just don't. I'm going to mess up on stocks, going to mess up on shots, and these critters have such keen instincts that they're just going to beat me sometimes. When I'm bow hunting, you know, I sometimes it's going to be a doe I didn't see or the wind's going to switch, and, and sure, I learn my directionals and my thermals really well, and I get good at predicting the winds, but you can't control all of it. Like, I'm going to make mistakes, but it's about picking myself back up and getting back after it like that perseverance and persistence are so important mental toughness is so important and the way you build that in the off season is is by getting physically fit like building that discipline and getting those workouts in so i I think it's great that you mentioned that and i think um you know for a while people would say well you don't have to be in great shape to kill an elk or kill a mule deer and you don't but it sure does help let me tell you well i'll tell you right now especially if somebody's really, really wanting to get in to locations where, you know, the hunting pressure is less and, and they have maybe a better opportunity to catch something that's natural habitat undisturbed. You just got to go deeper. You know, one time there was a statistic, um, if I remember correctly, that I read one time in a magazine that talked about hunting and they said that uh, today's hunter, that 90% of today's hunter doesn't go much more than a half a mile off the road. And then if you wanted to be uh, away from hunting pressure, go over a mile from the road and you'll pretty much have the land to yourself. And, um, and, and there's a lot to be said about that. Now, I think that that statistic might have changed a little bit because I think that today's hunter is spending so much time getting in good physical condition because they realized that they had to get there and get themselves to a point um, so they could do that so i think that that statistic or that study is probably you know changed a little bit but again i know this much um unless you've been to the yukon and and you've been up to alaska which i've been blessed and fortunate to be able to do 
and you're out there in Mother Nature and in their own habitat where you don't have to worry about hunt pressure, but in public lands and in the lower 48, you know, you just got to go deeper um, in order to get away from that. And when you're fortunate enough that you can and you don't have that hunt pressure, watch the behaviors of the animal. Um, you'll you'll see that they're a lot more active, they're a lot more docile, they're a lot more going to be predictable versus the unpredictability. Like you said earlier, you know, you talked about how the elk at sunset or sunrise were already in the timber. And, you know, but 20 years ago, were they in the timber under the same conditions? Most likely not because they didn't have the same amount of pressure. And, uh, you know, even though we're on the top of the food chain, Mother Nature adapts is so adaptable to to the situation and um and that's what happens so um but i had a thought about technology it's just it's kind of off subject but i'm just going to tell you this yeah we talked about technology we talked about um you know the map programs i want to just say something about a gps i just want to tell everybody it's kind of a funny story it's sitting on my mind here so when i got my first gps it was a garmin gps and it kind of looked like a cell phone you know they were like what nine ten, ten inches long and it had a little screen on it you know yeah i remember and, and i didn't even know how to use it you know quite but i was trying to figure it out so i i actually got turned around and got caught in a major rainstorm where i had i'd lost all my landmarks the sun went down and i'm trying to figure out where i'm at um and you know you don't have the map program in your phone you don't have so you're trying to think okay what direction you were and it was like i mean it was raining so hard that everything was the, the 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 rain was sideways and it's it's dark and there's no moonlight and you know and the bulls were bugling the lightning was striking it was just crazy man it was i can't even describe it i remember it so vividly and so i pulled out my gps and said, okay I, I know i marked my truck and I couldn't figure out how to use it. You know what I did with a GPS? That, my flashlight went dead. I used a GPS light as a kind of a flashlight to just kind of semi-see what, what I was doing. And lo and behold, just out of the blue, I, I all of a sudden I, I stepped somewhere and I felt like, hey, this feels like a road. Because I could it was so dark I couldn't even see. And because I had no light except for this little tiny GPS light. And I got to walking down this road and I flashed the GPS light and I saw the reflector of a vehicle. I had walked circles for about four hours and I literally walked out within a hundred yards of my truck and the GPS light reflect, <laughs> reflected my rear, rear, <laughs> uh, my, my rear lights and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of my, my – that was my first experience using GPS. Okay? <laughs> I don't think that's don't how they – I don't it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think that's how they meant for it to be used, but it, it got the job done anyways. <laughs> that's well, so funny, you know, JP. I, I, yeah, that's – That um, day after that, I changed my game. I was like, do you you know, let's do this, but anyhow. But no, I um, I truly wish every hunter the best in the hope that they have a great outdoor experience. I, I really – have a lot of stories to tell about, and I try to share this with my hunters and say, listen, guys, um, my famous sayings, what I say to my hunters, I'll tell them what they are. First of all, I said, listen, you gotta, you have two responsibilities, and that's to be in shape and to shoot your weapon and be efficient with your weapon when you get here. And the other thing that I tell them is if you're coming here for an outdoor experience, you're going to have the time of your life. If you're coming here to kill and you're worried about numbers, I don't care how big of an animal you kill, you're probably going to go home disappointed. And because people put so much pressure on themselves that they're so worried about how big an animal is rather than grasping the outdoor experience and understanding that they defeated Mother Nature by harvesting an animal and how difficult 
that really is and the effort it really takes for that to occur. Um, I can't even express to you my personal opinion about how that is. And I've seen that in the thousands and thousands of hunters in over 30 years and 37 years, I don't even know, 35 years, whatever it's been that I've been doing this. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I really, really preach that, you know, and I've been there. That's the best advice you could give those guys. Like, uh, what a great explanation of it, you know, to, to be able to talk to him and, and tell him like, it's, um, it, you know, and you've harvested so many big critters just in your own personal hunting career. And so, you know, it now that, that the fun and the enjoyment comes from the journey. It comes from uh, putting in the work to try to harvest an animal like that. It, it comes from the adventure of being out in the woods and challenging yourself, getting lost and having to find your way back with the GPS light. At least for me, like I love to push my limits and I think, um, you know, hunting these mature animals, uh, these mature critters in, in the wildest places in the lower 48, like the like chasing these critters is the most intimate experience you can do with nature, like uh, the, the most intimate experience that you can do that ties to our ancestors. Like there's something inside us that makes us feel alive when we're when we're chasing these animals. I know for me, like there's nothing, you know in life like uh these adventures i take with a bow and arrow successful or unsuccessful are the most meaningful journeys i take and so the quicker you can you know and i was i was young one time and wanted to to harvest these bucks with a bow and don't you know don't get me wrong i still love to challenge myself and i love to arrow trophy critters and that is the goal at the end of the day but the goal is to enjoy the experience to enjoy the journey and no matter you know how much money i was to to pay you to guide me jp like um that would be the number one thing on the forefront of my mind. Or if I was going for a, a doll sheep hunt or any of these hunts I do, you know, uh, even just this year, multiple mule deer and elk and, and moose and uh, all these great experiences. Like uh, the, the fun is to soak it all in, soak the enjoyment, the laughing with your friends, soak the enjoyment of the long hikes, the sitting on the vantage points. When you look back at that hunt, it's going to be the adventure and the experience. It's not really the, the trophy or if he made a, 180 or if he made 190 for me it's like a just a mature buck and sure you know i set my standards fairly high something i'm gonna be happy with that i shoot like i want to be elated when i arrow an animal uh but but in the same breath it's like i don't need to shoot a 200 incher to be happy like i hunt places like uh eastern montana where you know our genetics aren't great they're like a like a prairie mule deer and they've been hunted you know there's 16,000 non-residents that have a general tag for this place every single year with rifles during the rut like montana manages on uh uh you know doesn't manage for trophy quality it it, it manages um uh, for opportunity and so you know we get to hunt the rut with rifles or those guys do i hunt with my bow they allow me to hunt with my bow during that rifle season but you know out there if i can shoot a five or six year old mule deer that's 160 inches or better dark horned heavy prairie mule deer i am stoked beyond belief you know and and, and so also your expectations have to manage you have to match the place you're hunting now if i was hunting down with you and i was hunting the strip or like when i hunt some of these high country tags in Colorado, you know, I know that a uh, that 180 or 190 inch inch deer. 
you know, I know that that's possible, and those deer live in there, and I see them each and every year that I hunt there. So, you know, my expectations are going to get a bit larger, and I don't need to harvest a deer to get a great experience. And so I might set my goal a little bit higher that, hey, for this hunt, I'm going to hunt this buck, and I'm going to hunt them for 10 days. And if I don't kill a buck and I hunt for 10 days, it's going to be this great experience with me in the mountains. And if I do reach my goal and arrow this buck, well, that's going to be great too. It's going to be the highlight of my hunting season. But yeah, too many guys uh, put too much pressure on having a social media post or killing a big buck to impress their friends or their their followers or their, you know, I don't know. It's just the, the, the numbers game. And we all like big deer and big bulls. Like, uh, you know, I'm no different. But um, in the same breath, it, it is about the journey and the experience and this interaction with nature. You know, you're you're so spot on. And you, you and I are on the same page with that. You know, I've been really Again, fortunate to hunt with some of the people I've hunted with. And, you know, Aaron Snyder um, is a very good friend of mine. He's hunted with me multiple times. Uh, he runs Kafaru. And he, um, I love hunting with him. And it's so funny because, you know, we like, okay, Aaron's here. You know, we really want to try to help him kill this big buck we saw. And Aaron's just like, listen, man, I, I don't care how big the buck is. I just, I'm here to hunt. I just, I like hunting. And, I, you know, whatever opportunities arise. And he shot up uh, over-the-counter mildew with us in August. And he was hunting a, a really big deer, like a 190, 195 class deer. Um, and um, one of the other bucks that were with this deer, um, you know, um, just presented an opportunity at 30 yards from him. And he drew his bow and smashed him. And, and, and I can tell you that we were all so happy for him that just, first of all, shoot an over-the-counter mule deer with a bow that's, you know, in the 170s, you know, 160s, 170s is an incredible feat. But, you know, um, again, you know, to be around a guy like him that kills so many things per year, I mean, that guy is a killer. He's a killer. Um, and could care less what anything scores. He just loves to hunt. Um, that really puts a great perspective um, on what, you know, people do because, you know, there's a guy that's killed a lot of stuff, and he could set parameters to say, no, this is my parameters. But he hasn't lost his passion for hunting, and it helps people like me and helps others around our camp to recognize, why are you here? I mean, really, what it's about. Um, and, and I think that's important. And, again, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that you allow me the opportunity to express that and that we have similar views about it. And I hope that the hunting community at large, you know, recognizes that. Yes, I'm with you, man. If I have a 300-inch class bull and a 400-inch class bull and they're both within bow range and can I shoot one or the other, absolutely I'm going to try to kill a big one. <laughs> of course. But if it didn't happen and the situation was just right and I shot the 300 and that's what I chose to do, great. I'm ecstatic. But like you talked about, which is a very difficult thing with me, this social media People chastise you. They they go after you or they say, well, see, he's not as good as a guide or a hunter as he was because, you know, he, you know, he didn't kill that or whatever. And, and nobody knows the moment, you know, nobody at all understands that moment, you know. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I just I feel really blessed and fortunate when I get an opportunity to be around people that help keep me recognizing that my passions are still right and my direction is still right. And I can only hope that, that our experiences with hunters do the same. 
you know, honestly. Yeah, it's infectious when you hang out with people like that, that um, that love it with every fiber of their being, and you can feel it and see it, and they're not the guys that kill 160, 170-inch deer and are disappointed in what they killed, you know? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me, you know? it's uh, But... Like you say, to see somebody so stoked, like for me to kill, you know, I I killed a great late season buck last year that, uh, you know, it was a 160 inch deer, had an extra, but just heavy and dark horns and this great representation mm. to the place I was hunting. And I'm stoked beyond belief, you know, it's like uh, uh, that is the that is the essence of hunting, you know, and, and you do like um, I bet. It's it's tough for you, like it's a tough balance, JP, because you're in northern Arizona that's known for giant bulls and giant bucks, but there's there's other like good opportunities down there too, like some of these tags uh, that guys have to draw. Like I'd love to hunt the Kaibab, like kind of you probably know way more about it than me, and I've never had a chance to hunt. I apply for it with the for the bow tag because it's a little bit easier than the strip, and I know you know that it's thick, thicker, denser country, not as much glassing, more still hunting. It's roaded country and things of that nature. But but even put that tag aside, like man, Arizona has some great over-the-counter opportunities, and that's like the early season hunt that Aaron went on, and then I love your guys' uh, rut hunts in December oh, and January man. down through there. Man, there's some awesome opportunity that's trophy opportunity and experience down there with the over-the-counter, and sure, maybe you're not shooting for you know the, the caliber of buck like you killed in the strip or something of that nature, but there is still great bucks down there in those, those over-the-counter opportunities. Do you get guys that want to hunt those as well oh man i tell you it's a really hot item um we've been really fortunate that the over-the-counter hunts um for archery mill deer and coos deer um are some of that's i probably take more over-the-counter hunters than anybody because i just love that hunt and we live right in the heart of the best you know archery mill deer archery coos deer in the west and um you know it's just it's just incredible and you know it's funny if you pay attention, there's always every year somebody hammers like an absolute slob of a deer. We've been blessed. We did kill a couple of years ago. Uh, the biggest over-the-counter over mule deer we killed was 226. It's because he was non-typical. He had a 190-inch frame with 37 inches of trash, and, and it was all in his eye guards. We called the buck Crazy Eyes. We have been every year we'll kill one or two bucks that hit the 200 class. Um, a lot of bucks, you know, that are definitely 170 and and a handful of 180 class deer. But you know, I'm talking about these deer um, that realistically you would kill in the strip or the Kaibab too. Oh yeah. Um, what's his name there? Gosh, I just forgot he hunted with me. Um, I have to think about it when it comes back. But uh, he there was an over the counter guy that um, that hunted two years ago and he hunted with us and didn't get an opportunity and he went down south and um i saw that he had killed a, a 240 inch deer and he sent me a picture of it it looked like it was straight out of the strip it was a big sonoran buck you know so they are here and um i think that uh, if people can still have a great experience but to hunt like 170 class deer i mean honestly that's a big deer it's a giant and to be able to go over the counter and that over-the-counter tag is valid in August and December, you know, for the calendar year. Then you buy another one in January, you know, and still be able to hunt them in the rut. You know, there are some restrictions now in Arizona that have the quota system. But, 
what I found with the quota system, and I kind of predicted it in my own head. I didn't say it publicly, but the areas where you got to really hunt, you know, the percentage of success on archery deer is very, very low. Um, and uh, so the areas that the guy's got to put his backpack on and hunt where these 170 to 200-inch class live, um, that's a low percentage, even though there will be a, a pretty good handful of those deer in there to hunt. You will hunt, and you will see those deer. Um, the deer that really got impacted on, like, the quota system in Arizona this year, and in conversation with Game of Fish, I ran into a Game of Fish officer that I know, as well as I talked to local taxidermists. I talked to, you know, a meat processor buddies of mine. You know, they were killing a lot of one- to three-year-old deer just off the road kind of a deal, you know, in recreational areas, and that, that loaded up the quota system. So, you know, for myself, I, I, I didn't personally like how that went down, but I will say this, that that means that the older age class deer that survived are just going to get bigger. And I think in the next two to three years, those areas um, are going to just really, really blow up with some big deer that all of a sudden you're going to hear about that somebody killed. Like, are you kidding me? They're shooting, you know, a lot of 200 inch deer in Arizona now. And, um, but I know this much where I guide my OTC hunts, um, those quotas haven't been met. And I know why, because most of the bucks that get killed in those areas are killed by somebody like us, an outfitter, other outfitters that guide in there. I know there's certainly some DIY guys that go in there and have success, but, but they're not able to hunt deer that are docile because of human contact. Because these animals, um, you have to get back into them. you got to catch them in their habitat. And when they deal with human contact, they get wise real quick. You know, so, um, you know, when I say that, I mean, like, you know, if you're up there by Williams, Arizona, and there's a recreational plate where people are fishing and camping and all that deer and elk get used to seeing vehicles and seeing people and they're not so you know, um, afraid of that. And so that allows a higher opportunity for somebody to maybe get a shot, we'll say. Whereas you're in the back country, and our back country is not like you guys in Montana and Wyoming and stuff, um, but um, where you got to get out and do a backpack deal. And there's a, you know, there's, there's a band of, of, of bucks, you know, four or five mature bucks back there. And the first time they see human or, you know, or have human contact, they become very aware and uh, and they don't just sit there and wait. They they're like, hey, this ain't right, man. I gotta go. You know. So you know that's just my opinion. But I, I there is some crazy opportunities, crazy opportunities. We actually did some over the counter elk hunting this year with some clients. And so there's hunts out there like you can hunt over the counter in some of these areas for elk in Arizona. And we actually killed a couple of bulls in velvet, like 300 to 330 class bulls um, in July. Um, because the, it, it was open and I had some guys that wanted to come hunt elk and I called them and then I called some other guys at a different time and we didn't see any. So you just never know, you know, you just never know. Yeah, that's great, JP. I didn't even think about that, about that tag quota system. So the quota system now in Arizona, you have to report your harvest and then after so many harvests, they shut that unit down. Is that correct? That's correct. They, yeah. they close that unit the following Wednesday after they've met their har harvest objective during the season, and it's closed for the rest of the season. So if they hit a quota, then it moves. So I've had a lot of questions about that, and people will say, well, you know, how's that impacted you? I booked a hunt with you. And we guide so much, and we have so many hunt areas around where we guide that if for some reason an area that is closed off to us, 
because it met the quota doesn't impact us because we'll just go to the next unit that borders it that we know that you know hasn't met the quota and we check the quotas on I literally check them daily so I got a good understanding of what it is with the mandatory reporting and um, but none of the areas that I truly guide for the most part on OTC they're all open mm, that's, and that's so great they, yeah so like example that maybe they had 25 is their harvest objective to, to meet the quota I looked the other day and there was like five bucks killed in August. So do I think that that's going to be closed in December and January? I don't, you know, I could be wrong. We'll find out. It's the first time we ever did it, but I don't see that being an issue. Good. And if that unit got closed, I'll move to the next one. That's right there because we spend so much time over there that we understand where to go. And again, I'm going back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, a plethora of, years of information, a log of where to go, when to go, and other places that we could expand to go. I, like I said, I've been, you know, I, I'm just one of those guys I like to explore, especially when it came to hunting. So I've got a lot of miles on the boots and lots of, lots of time in a lot of places in this state. So I, I've, ne I've never been concerned about it. Good. That's great to hear. Yeah, me neither. There's so many great units to hunt down there that, yeah, it's like I don't want my favorite unit to close down. But if it did, like I know the bordering units and there's just as big a bucks down there. And, yeah, I, I've i been so impressed at the quality I can find there, down there. You know, like the southern end, some of those Sonoran desert mule deer are just giants. And then I, I got hooked on coos deer for – five or six seasons i would head down and hunt them with my bow they told me success rate was like two or three percent with the bow and arrow during that january hunt but you get to hunt all the best units in the in the best season imaginable in that january rut hunt and you see some amazing world-class coos deer down there and and they are so challenging but it's just action and you it's not that popular. You don't run into a bunch of guys. You pretty much have the mountains to yourself. Like you're able to get this uh, amazing desert experience down there. And so, yeah, whether it's uh, hunting coos or lately I've been so hooked on getting down there and hunting mule deer during the rut. There's some great opportunity. And it's a different place, man. It takes like um, like these different species in different habitats. They go a long ways at improving your skill set as well. Like those years I hunted coos deer made me way better at glassing, you know, because those coos deer are little gray ghosts. Like they're tough to, to spot. They're tough to keep track of. And so they met or, made me a better glasser. And now I'm able to take these skill sets to different places, hunting mule deer and hunting elk and different things. You know, it's in, improved my glassing skill set. You know, and a lot of times you get on a coos deer vantage point there's like it almost seems like overwhelming there's too much country to glass and so you have to slowly pick it apart and you get your routine you figure out what glass is right for what distances and so you learn a ton about it and and same thing you know hunting those those mule deer down there like um they're different than the mule deer i hunt in the high country or in the the foothills or the breaks or the badlands like those deer are different like um you you mentioned your buck you killed him on a water source that great big one you killed in 19 like uh i've noticed that water is so important in arizona where it's not in a lot of the states or a lot of the high country i hunt a lot of times i never see a deer drink and they may go down every three days but i've noticed how important those water sources are down there and so you know i've had to improve like my tracking skill set like i never used to pay attention to tracking too much and i heard you mention in the podcast being able to notice what a big buck track is or what a big bull track so this is a part of my my skill set a part 
part of my game that I'm really working on is my tracking skills. And so, like, when I get to Arizona, I'm always walking all your guys' washes over there, and I'm looking for tracks and sign. I'm walking around, you know, every drinker that I can find, every water source. I walk around it and see what I can pick up for tracks. And it seems like once I can start to find deer tracks— like, it's like, okay, now I know there's mule deer in this area. Now I'm going to find the master vantage point that shows off this country around this drinker, around this water source. And so because your densities are low, before I did that, I was just using these tactics that I would use in other places that have bigger deer densities, and I was striking out a lot. Like, I wasn't finding deer because I'd go to these master vantage points where there is no water source and there is no deer. Their population isn't around there, and their their populations uh, of these animals, like it's not spread out throughout the unit like there's there's pockets of these animals and so your job is you got to figure out where these pockets are but it's difficult because they're only active in the first hour of light and the last hour of light and so you've got this whole middle of the day and this middle of the day like i say i've been using walking washes and walking water and i'm trying to adapt to those mule deer that you guys hunt in arizona which in turn makes me a better overall bow hunter in the end you know but uh i just think it's it's been so wild to be able to go down there and immerse myself in your guys's desert landscape and try to figure out your mule deer down there and they are not easy man they are tough down there they uh oh, they, they definitely have keen instincts man they're tough to harvest a big one yeah totally and it's like getting on crack like everybody you get addicted to them really quick because they're i think it's because they're just so they're just so hard to hunt and they're so fun and when you get an opportunity to really understand what a big coozer is and you get this opportunity to hunt them and, and hopefully harvest one. It's just like you just get this addiction, like, oh, my God, I got to do it again. Because they're a tough animal, you know. But you brought up a really interesting point that I will share with you. Uh, Marlon Holding from, he's called the Gray Light Hunter on Instagram. Really good friend of mine. He's mm-hmm. a desert mule deer killing machine, man. That guy kills some stuff. You know, he's so that. good at it. I've had him on the oh, podcast. Yeah, I consider him a God. friend as well. Yeah, he's so good in that desert landscape. Man, he is. And we were talking the other day, and him and one of my other guides, Dustin, we're all we're all visiting about some about the desert, you know. And and uh, and we, it's funny, we have this. I've never actually hunted with Marlin, but we talk a lot, you know. So we just kind of share information. He's taught me a lot of stuff, even in at my age and in my late fifties. Here, I, I I can always learn something, you know. But one thing I will say is, when you talk about mule deer in the desert and even coos deer, you want to find a big mule deer. The best way to find them is just exactly what you're doing is to get in those arroyos because that's where they live and that's where it's cool and that's where you know it's like a coolies if you if you put it in perspective the coolies up in in you know what and and i don't even know what what, what a coolie really is you know to be honest with you but whitetails in montana or wherever you know they have what they call the coolies to me it's in arizona it's an arroyo where you have these old dry creek beds maybe you have some held up water but it's nice and cool and, um, and, you know, um, I always think back when I would do in Sonoran hunts, when I would be with the, uh, with the, the, the Mexican guides down there and the guys that I hunted with, we would stop for a midday break and they literally would go into these washes in the sand and they would cook lunch. And we always had a hot lunch. This was always cool. Then they would take a little siesta for an hour and they would lay in the shade in these, in these washes. And I would sit there and I'd look at him. I thought, man, this is crazy, man, what these guys are doing. But it was comfortable, and I got, I did it for many years, and I got to understand it. And I, and one day it just clicked in me, and I said, that's where the big mule deer are, man. I mean, that's exactly where they are. And when we started hunting those 
arroyos a little bit more and paying a little bit more attention to them, we started producing the big desert builder bucks. And uh, and think about it though, no finer place to be in January than Arizona, right? Seventy degrees, maybe even eighty. But those mirrors don't like that, so they got to stay where it's cool. So where's the coolest place in the desert? In the arroyos, and that's their habitat. That's where they live. Man, that's so true. I love how you talk about how you're still learning. I think um, the best hunters are just students of the game, right? It's like you, it's it's like yeah, you. Uh, you get pretty good at your craft, but it's never mastered. You're always trying to pick up tips. So I love that you're talking to Marlin and picking up tips in his mule deer hunting that you can implement in your own hunting, like continuing to learn uh, to learn and evolve. Like I, I think that's a beautiful thing, man. So hey, tell me a little bit. Uh, you have a show. Um, so uh, have a show. You guys do it uh, Carbon TV uh, called Guided, and then also on YouTube, right? Yeah, so it's really cool, man. Thank you so much about that. First of all, we've been fortunate um, to have some some people that stand behind us at Carbon TV and, you know, some of the outdoor industry partners with, with Leopold and Kafaru, Montana Knife Company, Sornax. I can go down this long list. Matthews that, you know, have helped us uh, grasp a concept. So the concept was that we wanted to do this show that was very raw, uh, realistic, no stage stuff, and we wanted to to take this show and give it from a guide's perspective. You know, for many years I've watched a lot of hunting shows and everything was always about the hunter and, and our hunters are showcased on there, but we really, really try to give it from a guide's perspective and try to talk about strategies and what we're doing. Um, and hopefully it's educational. Part of it's a, we hope that people can watch it and learn something. Um, and, um, we're going into our we're in our fourth season right now and we're filming for our fifth season um it's been really really successful um, um and some you know one of the my favorite hunts again we did film when i killed the diesel buck and then at the same time we shot what they call the gold post buck right after i'd killed diesel an hour after i killed him um that's been a really really popular show my wife's she shoots like a 390 girls kind of a bull with a muzzleloader um that's a cool deal but one of my favorite shows uh, that we aired this year in august it's called the high desert mule deer otc hunt and bert soren from soren x and josh smith from uh, montana knife company brandon lilly we're all all here and we we filmed it and um josh killed an incredible buck um and uh, there was another person, Justin Henry, killed a, a 218, of all things. This this buck's tremendous in velvet, just a giant, giant mill deer. Um, but but Bert didn't, and Bert hunted his butt off, man. And, and he had some close opportunities that just didn't pan out. And I love that show, and I'll tell you why I love that show, because it's so true to what hunting over-the-counter mill deer is about. Seeing these big mill there, working your butt off, and and getting close, getting opportunities, um, and um, so he doesn't harvest a buck. And we featured Bert on this particular deal, but I send that video to more people to ask me about OTC hunts because I want them to know what they're facing. Um, and so our shows stay is not staged; it's raw. Sometimes we get a little bit mouthy on there. Some you know guys get emotion. You know, we got it. We try to clean up our language, but you know, we're just who we are. You know. Yeah, totally. And, 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 and but at the end of the day, uh, we're just it, it's it's been really successful, and we encourage people to go to Carbon TV. It's a free app. 
um, you know, download the Carbon app and you can watch that and any. There's tons and tons of hunting shows on it. Or they can go to our YouTube channel um, on Big Channel Outfitters and look up Guided, and they can see all our stuff on there too. Um, everything goes to Carbon first, 90 days after, then we put it on YouTube. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just want to we want to show and showcase what Arizona is all about. Hopefully, educate some people. Um, and we want people to see the products we use and what's helping us be successful. But more importantly, we hope that it's educational, truthfully. And I'm getting ready. I just met with, with Zach from Battle Mountain Media, and we're getting ready to to maybe do an off-season discussion. Like um, I may go on there for a 10- or 15-minute little, little blurt and just talk about stuff like we're talking about. You know, why we do what we do, what's important with glassing, what could you do different, you know, how can we become better, you know, what do we do wrong this year, you know, so on and so forth, because, you know, I, I just want the truth out there, and I want people to know, hey, how can we be better and enjoy our passion, and um, I'm I'm not the cure-all, I don't know anything compared to so many people that are so much more educated than I am and have much more experience, but, you know, um, I've talked to a lot of old timers. Um, I had an old timer the other day, John Apollo's father's. Uh, unfortunately, he found out that he's in, in stage four cancer and with prostate cancer. And he, he came up to my um, my cabin with his son. His son guides with me. And he'd never been able to, to put his hands on diesel. And we have a diesel replica up there. And he was, you know, he had said how big the buck was. He'd never seen a buck. But this guy is like a guy that when I was a kid, he was known for killing these giant desert mule deer and i always used to just like oh man i, I want to kill a buck like he kills you know and there he is this guy's legend in my mind holding a buck and saying the same thing about me and i'm like wow that's that's just crazy you know just crazy so that's um, that's humbling man and and you do you have so much great value to add and i think that would be a huge hit like a uh, I love how how you talk about the show and talk about the authenticity. Like that is king. It's like uh, uh, showing the true experience. You know, like uh, nothing staged, everything real, raw. Like you say, we're grown men. Every once in a while, a swear word comes out, especially when we get excited. But uh, I think that's beautiful. I can't wait to check out that episode with Bert. I really like that guy, and um, I, I really. And fascinated about checking it, uh, checking out that that over the counter experience too. So, uh, personal question for you, JP. So, like, yeah, well, I guess yeah. not personal. I guess it's personal because it's a uh, me trying to to get information. So, like, I hunt a lot of the the central parts of the state and the southern parts of the state, trying to hit that rut. Can I still hit good rut action in that northern part of the state in January? Absolutely. The first week of January, this rut is rolling, man. Um, it starts actually. Um, in the northern part of the state, it'll start around the, the when it opens in December night. The rut will be going; it'll get started. But Christmas is like the magic day where the rut is like hitting its peak. So that two-week time frame from about the December twenty-fifth um, through to January eighth, and even up to January tenth, the rut is just roaring. And then you still have a big heavy rut, but the deer are just kind of like scattered and rutting and i start to see the rut in northern arizona taper off around the, the 20th of january so we start moving a little bit further south you know and, and and to do some of the later hunts you know we really really like to be down in that uh, that phoenix area and tucson area so north tucson area around 
January 10th through the 20th. And then if we're still going to the end of the season, then we're a lot closer to the Sonoran border, you know, doing stuff, you know, and Safford and things like that. But absolutely, man. I And I will tell you this, my own perspective, and I will say this, um, so I'm sharing a secret, I guess I'll say, is that we have a higher number and concentration of older class mule deer in Northern Arizona than we do in Southern. Now, Southern Arizona still has great mule deer and big mule deer, but it just seems like from about, I would say from about Prescott North, if you drew this line across the state, you know, um, I would say that, you know, those areas seem to just have that next level. So what does that mean to me? If you're used to in Southern Arizona seeing 150 to 160s um, up in, that further northern area, you're going to probably see the 160 to 180 class deer. And with 180s, that means that there's always going to be the handful of bucks that are 180 to 200, and there's always an exceptional buck that you'll see. And, in, in, um, you know, this year, though, is I believe is completely different um, than a lot of years. We've had so much, so much rain. I mean, it rained yesterday. Um, it looks like it's going to rain today. It started raining January, June 15th up in, in the central northern Arizona mountains. Our deer have blown up. Um, it is unreal how big the mule deer are up here. Unreal. And um, I just saw, I've seen some really tremendous bucks that we hunted and, and have been killed. I'm very excited about what we have on the table for our general season deer hunts right now. And then going right back into the OTC hunts, which is my favorite hunt is in December. I just love hunting them up here and guiding it. It's just so fun, but there's a big, big deer. And I, my prediction is, is that the OTC hunts this year in Arizona, I mean, I just saw one um, on a, on a junior's hunt. I saw Jason Bond's daughter shot a, just an absolute giant of a deer on a, on a junior's hunt in October, 10 days ago. And I saw a client from Shadow Valley Outfitters killed a, a great junior's buck and when you look at these deer and you're just going, holy crap, man. Most of the hunters that I've known and sometimes you go to the Kaibab and the strip and that's what they're killing. So, uh, I, yeah, I, you know, weather is so indicative of our horn growth for Arizona. You can pay attention. There's been some tremendous bulls that got killed this year. Um, we were fortunate to kill one really, really smoker, you know, in the mid 390s, but uh uh, there's been some really, really big bulls have been being killed. There's some big milder going to hit the ground this next three weeks. I think you're going to see some giant milder hit the ground. Um, a lot of people are saying that the strip and the kaibab may not be as good. Well, I can kind of agree to a certain extent. I, I still think you can still find what you're looking for up there unless you're really trying to find a 250-plus deer. I would never tell you, even on a good year, that you're going to find that. That takes a lot of work and a, and a little bit of luck, but uh, I can tell you that in the central portions of Arizona and northern Arizona that are not considered the premium areas, so south of the ditch, we call it, south of the Grand Canyon, um, there's some big deer, man. And this year, you watch, there's going to be some big deer that are going to hit the dirt because we've had so much rain. And I think next year, whew, next year's going to be the tag. Next year's going to be the year, I think, to have an elk tag or a mill deer tag in Arizona because... And again, I'm talking about historic knowledge, paying attention to rain years versus dry years and logging 
and logging horn growth and logging, you know, I'm, I'm so kind of crazy about it. I actually measure grass. I have like these little spots <laughs> that I actually go and I measure, you know, I have like my own little study and I'm not a biologist or something. I'm just a, a guy that's just, just picked a spot and say, you know, what? I'm going to measure the grass here every year and see what happens. And so I kind of use that as my, you know, kind of my telltale. And then I compare that to the animals we harvest or see. So it's going to be tremendous, man. It really is. It's amazing. Uh, JP, you're an absolute wealth of knowledge. And um, thanks thanks for sharing so much info and answering my questions. Uh, you got to come back on the podcast. So either as we're gearing up for those late season hunts or maybe after when you get some time. And, um, man, I wish you all the luck the, with the, the TV show. I'm definitely going to go check out those episodes and then um, follow along. Where's the best place to follow you guys on social media? Yeah, man. Finally, well, first of all, we have an Instagram, you know, Big Chino Outfitters uh, on Instagram. I am personally Big Chino One, um, and we have Big Chino Outdoors, and we also have Guided TV on Instagram. So those are kind of our platforms as well as, you know, our Facebook page, you know, or Twitter page. You know, everything's going to fall under Big Chino or Big Chino Outfitters. Um, yeah, I would love that. Anybody can send me a text. Um, I don't mind putting my phone number out there, 928-925-9395. Send me an email at bigchinooutfitters.com, you know, whatever I can do to help you with information. Um, you know, we do offer scouting packages, so we don't just do guided hunts, you know, and we offer, you know, I just try to open it up at every level because I want every hunter that wants to come experience the outdoors to have an opportunity. So sometimes you know, things might be, maybe you're a new hunter, maybe you're 18 or 20 and you can't afford a guided hunt, but you really want to get out there and learn on the outdoors. You know, that's one way that uh, that we can help you with scouting packages. You know, we're always looking to hire good guides, you know, and and, uh, and try to help that. We're getting ready to put a guide class on. Um, I think next spring, you know, we want to offer that opportunity to start teaching a little bit, trying to share our craft so we can help people become better or if they want to get into this industry because it's not always uh, – about the grip and grin, you know, and I think it's important to get that out. But uh, I do want to tell you thank you and Jeff Helms and the Eastman's Journal. You guys have always been good to me, um, always reaching out and, and so kind. And I'm, I'm just so, so, so grateful for what Eastman's does for us. And again, all our, our outdoor industry partners, as we discussed with uh, with Kafaru and Montana Knives and, uh, you know, Sorenex and um, just all those those folks, you know, Sitka and just all the people that, that, that are behind us, Leopold. We just feel real blessed, you know. And again, you know, um, I just can't thank all of you enough. And thank you for the time. I'm so humbled. And if I could ever do anything on a podcast, I don't care what it is. You can ask me any question, um, whatever you like, whatever format. If I can share it, I will. Again, keep in mind my theory in life is that knowledge is power. Only if you share it. Otherwise, there's no power to it. So, Man, it's beautiful. A great way to end it. I'm so grateful. Yeah, that was such a great conversation, JP. So, yeah, thanks again, man. Uh, I appreciate it. We'll keep in touch and um, definitely be following along on your adventures. Please do. And, Ed, just between you and I, I want to invite you to come out and hunt with us sometimes. You can have an experience with us. So let's talk about that someday. Maybe we can coordinate a hunt and have you come out and hunt uh, some of our country and, ch- and check out our facility. That'd be great. Man, I'd love to. I'm definitely going to hit you up on that deal. So uh, thanks again, JP. All right, amigo. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Okay. All right, guys. Uh, such a fun conversation with JP. A guy's just a wealth of knowledge uh, about Arizona hunting and 
uh, over-the-counter hunting. He talks about the opportunities there. Um, I definitely want to get to that. Northern Arizona is so uh, such good information that he shared, like, the rut dates in there. Um, I've always kind of hunted the central and southern end of the state. I'd love to get in that northern end a bit and chase some of those bucks he's talking about. But thanks again for uh, JP for coming on the podcast. Uh, I'll have him on again. I, I really liked our conversation on there. And uh, would be good for like those January rut hunts uh, to get you guys some information or uh, maybe some information on the draws there in Arizona as he knows them like the back of his hand. So thanks again to JP for coming on the podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors, Everly Stock. Uh, thanks again to Savage Rifles, uh, Black Ovis, and Camo Fire. I uh, really appreciate all our sponsors here and I appreciate you guys for listening in. Uh, uh, social media. I, I need to get better and uh, make some more posts on there for sure. I've just been running so busy, but um, I'll make sure to keep putting content on there. And uh, uh, thanks so much for the support of the podcast, the downloads, the reviews really help iTunes, things of that nature. So, so proud at the community that we've created and really fun to share in your guys' success this year as I've been seeing quite a few photos come across my feed. So congratulations to you guys putting in the hard work and coming out on top. It's um, not easy out there on public land. Do it yourself. It's about building this knowledge and this skill set to be able to show up to these places and be undeniable or at least give yourself the best chance at success. So, um, man, I absolutely love it with every fiber of my being, and I know you guys do too. Uh, So uh, as long as you guys keep listening in, we'll keep putting out podcasts. So um, thanks to you guys. And, um, yeah, thanks to Eastman's for all their support. You can check out that Mule Deer course. Oh, uh, we do have a promo code for Black Ovis, too. Uh, It's Eastman's 10. That'll save you 10% at Black Ovis, so you can plug that in and save yourself a little cash. And, um, yeah, over at Eastman's, the Mule Deer course, the... Um, uh, Beyond the Grid, the internet TV show, the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. You can check us out there. And um, man, I'm just getting back from an epic hunt, epic week of chasing muley bucks. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, so many miles, put on some great stocks, chased some great bucks. Man, I had some close calls. I just couldn't quite bring it together. I had that that buck jump my string second to last day. And, um, man, they were just really switched on there. It was almost like a pre-rut. They were running solo. I uh, did see a couple chasing does, but um, not a lot of rutting action. But I see after I've got back that the the rut is really turned on. So uh, I'm going to see if I can get my house painted here and maybe squeak out for a couple, two, three days. I got my, my uncle and my cousin coming to town. They're going to hunt. They drew tags from Washington, so drew tags here in Montana. Uh, so I want to help them out as much as I can. And, um uh, maybe chase them around a little bit, see if I can find another one that um, get a good arrow in them. So, um, man, it's so fun. The rut's uh, going off right now. So, yeah, just um, need to get my house moved and house done. I really need to get my head down, get some work done. But um, hunting season only comes once a year, so try to squeak as many days out as I can. But uh, I uh, really appreciate your guys' support. And, um, and with that, check in with you guys next week.